Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Natalie Haynes on her latest novel, Stoneblind. Natalie Haynes is a writer and broadcaster. She is the author of the novels The Amber Fury, The Children of Jocasta, and A Thousand Ships and the non-fiction books The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, and most recently Pandora's Jar. Today we're going to be talking about Natalie's fourth novel, which is Stoneblind. Natalie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Tell us how you would describe Stoneblind then. Well, it's the story of Medusa. And again, it's a polyphonic novel, as Ships was. So there are lots of different voices telling you different parts of her story from different perspectives, because as so often with these myths, I mean, historically, they're sort of presented to us as like a one-man story. So it's Theseus and the Minotaur, it's Perseus and the Gorgon head, and it's Hercules and his labours. But actually, of course, when you reframe these stories and don't just assume that the man is the primary character, you end up with huge numbers of women's voices all kind of clamouring to be let in. And in the case of the Medusa story, it's a a more anachronistic thing to to focus on Perseus, really, I think, because there are Gorgon heads, Gorgonea, and Gorgons on temples and on shields and things long, long before Perseus appears anywhere in in the story, uh, hundreds of years before. So it seems most likely that the Gorgon heads are created, I mean, across different cultures, actually. Um, There's connections to Humbaba, maybe, and and elsewhere. But this idea of a sort of monstrous head that appears on a shield to scare your enemies, but also on a a temple to suggest there's something kind of protective, apotropaic about them, they're everywhere. And then I think what happens is the Greeks are sort of inveterate storytellers. They create bodies to go with the heads, and then they need a reason for why the heads of the bodies are separated. (laughs) And that's Perseus. So he is quite a late addition to the story. And so it just seemed right and proper to tell the story the other way, as it were, to go to go back to all those Gorgon heads and, uh, and look at the earliest iterations of Medusa. And we'll come back to the the Gorgon air, the idea of the, the, you know, the disembodied head. Yes. Later on. And indeed, those narrators, because those two (laughs) things are linked a little bit. They are. And um, but let's talk then about. I mean, you've just said that the 
weirdly, like the idea of the head almost precedes the idea of Medusa as yes. a character. But, you know, Medusa, going back right to, you know, to Hesiod and Ovid, as you, you talked about her in, in Pandora's Jar and right mm. through right through Clash of the Titans up to Versace, she's a very familiar character, a very familiar figure. But tell us something about, we'll come to your Medusa in a bit, but tell us something about who, I mean, there's obviously multiple versions, as I'm sure you'll tell us, but, you know, mm. who the, something about who the original Medusa was. Yeah, I mean, there's very little, actually, in our ancient literary sources about her. So there's like a sentence in Hesiod, in the Theogony, when he talks about the Gorgons, and he says that two of them, Stanner and Uriali, are immortal, and one of them, Medusa, um, it has an extra O in it, Medusa in Greek, but I went with the English spelling for my book so as not to make it sort of extra arcane, I guess. She is mortal and and Hesiod just kind of throws away a line. He says, that's a wretched fate. And that's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, we get very little about her. There are some lost plays, a play called The Forkides, The Daughters of Forkis, that's the Gorgons, but it's also, there are various other daughters of Forkis and, uh, and Cato, his his sea monster wife. He's a sea god, minor sea god. And so there's not much, actually. There are lots of artistic sources, lots of visual art sources, lots of vase paintings in particular and sculptures, a very, very beautiful sculpture of, of Medusa in Corfu, the archaeological museum in Corfu, which was originally on the Temple of Artemis there. So connecting Medusa to, to wild animals which, you know, she obviously is already the, the snakes for hair, but also the, the hair, whether it's hair hair or snake hair, looks a bit like a lion's mane. This is one of the ways in which she's probably apotropaic, I think. But if you have to sleep outside without big heavy doors, then maybe you're more afraid of things that go bump in the night than if you've got a nice, you know, big lock and not roaming mountain lions and so on. So there are a few versions of Medusa that survived to her sculpted versions in particular and lots of vase paintings where she's really, she looks really monstrous. So she's got tusks, again, wild boar, a dangerous thing in, in ancient Greece. And wings usually, uh, we think of her, we tend to think of her as having a tail, but that's really, that's really in Ray Harryhausen's Clash of the Titans. And it's really carried on. So like the little Lego Medusa from the Lego movie looks like a Lego version of that Medusa. But in ancient versions, she usually has wings rather than a, a snaky tail. She's got sort of dragon wings. And then in the 5th century BC, there's this sort of beautification process where monsters become less monstrous and, and prettier. And this, this means that Medusa gets turned into this beautiful girl. And we, we can read that story in Pindar. Pindar says, who's writing, sort of, it's really hard to explain the genre of Pindar. They're like celebratory odes for when you win an Olympic medal. <laughs> so niche, but great. And he mentions that uh, she's very beautiful. She's uh, Eupareu, I think, is the Greek. Uh, so she's very lovely. She has suitors coming from all parts of Greece. And then she's raped by Poseidon, god of the sea, in the temple of Athene. And as is so very, very often the way in ancient myth and indeed in the modern world, uh, it's not the rapist who attracts censure. It's the woman who's been raped. And so Athene, who's furious that her temple has been profaned by this rape, doesn't punish Poseidon, although in my book she does bear a grudge and get her own back eventually, but she does punish Medusa. And so this beautiful girl, as the fifth century has it, gets given snakes for her. And that's the point where her beauty is lost. And as Ovid tells it, it's her hair that had been the most beautiful thing about her. And then, alas, 
that's taken from her. So writing those sorts of scenes was really, was quite hard. But yeah, there you go. There's a few versions of Medusa from the ancient world film. I did notice that you decided to set the um, the rape of Medusa in a temple rather than the soft, damp meadow. I did decide to, yeah, there's a, a, another version where it takes place in a, a soft meadow and it is fully as um, as doublon tendrish in Greek as it is in, in English. But yeah, I felt like um, the time for telling you that story was in Pandora's Jar and the time for putting aside the sort of slight carry-on film nature of it was this time. So, yes. So why is she mortal? Because that makes no sense at all. I can't tell you that. I wish I could. Um, Hesiod is, is the one who mentions it first, at least, you know, in terms of our sources, that's the earliest one we have, I think. And he doesn't say why. I mean, it's completely bizarre. There are three sisters, one's mortal, two are immortal. I was like, wait, what? And that's it. Oh, that's a wretched fate, moves on. What? So, yeah, I mean, I I had my reasons. And I'm sure everyone else who interacts with this story must choose theirs. But yeah, there's not a there's not a reason given for why she should be uh, somehow more sort of fragile. But of course, it immediately offers you something incredibly potent for a novel, which is that she experiences change. And, you know, Gorgons aren't like Olympian gods, so they're not completely removed from the world. You know, they, they have this sort of liminal existence. They live, you know, on the shore. So they're sort of part, almost the sea, almost the land, almost the air, because they have they have wings as well. They exist in this sort of in-betweenish state. So they're not completely detached from everything. But for Medusa, it's a much more real, you know, change is, is really real. It means that she can grow up. You know, it's incredibly hard. We have loads of sources of gods who are born, like Dionysus, like Athene, like Hephaestus, and they're never presented in any state of childhood. You know, they're just like, bang, here you go. And so it's like, well, what happens to the immortal Gorgons? appear like that yeah probably I suppose but what about the mortal one and so yeah it meant that I got to to introduce her to them as something very fragile as a baby and uh and then they would have to these monsters would have to learn how to cope with a, a tiny baby to be fair Athene is born out of Zeus's head so perhaps mm. the idea that she's born you know but fully is, is the least weird bit about it I mean, you say that, but I had the worst <laughs> migraines for weeks at a time after having COVID. So uh, honestly, um, the headaches that Zeus has in this book, they are all mine. <laughs> every single every single moment of the agony is mine. And I think at one point in my negotiations with various doctors, I quoted him because the pain was so the same, obviously. And I said, it feels like my teeth are at war with my brain. <laughs> oh, okay. Makes note. Um, so yeah can you tell us some more about who your Medusa is then what changes you have wanted to make to her yeah I mean I wanted to make her very humane because I thought that would be because she is Gorgon but again she's sort of liminal she's somewhere between Gorgon and human because she's a monster at least according to the rules of whoever decides what's monstrous but at the same time you know she's she's mortal so she has this sort of fragility at her core And so I wanted to show her growing up and being kind of curious the way children are and how would you negotiate your way around a family, which is two sisters who are basically mothers, because I think generally for children, small children, their parents seem unchanging and super powerful, but hers actually are unchanging and super powerful. So they have this incredibly functional and for me anyway, very beautiful family, which isn't at all a sort of traditional family insofar as there are no parents involved uh, and they're also gorgons 
and you know a few other things but she has this sort of warmth to her and this curiosity of a of a child and then of a, a young teenager and then it's always really bothered me that we think of Medusa as a monster because she murders so many people using only the power of her gaze. You know, famously, she can turn anyone to stone. And then the thing is, when I was writing her chapter in Pandora's Jar, it's like, well, tell me who she turns to stone. Tell me who, she, when it's her choice, who does she turn to stone? And the answer is nobody. It's only after she's been decapitated by Perseus in the story as told by Ovid, for example, that she then is used as a sort of weapon of mass destruction. And when I say mass, I'm not kidding. He kills, is it 200 people, Ovid says, at his own wedding? So, you know, she gets used as a murder weapon, but she herself wasn't the murderous one, you know? And so I thought that was basically the tension I wanted to explore, is that we think of her as being intensely destructive, but what if she isn't? And, and what would happen if you were so destructive, but didn't choose to be? You know, how would you cope with the fact that you're suddenly cursed with this power to turn things to stone? And so a bit of the story that I talked about in Pandora's Jar was why do we see her from the outside when we see, for example, Midas, who's suddenly given the power to turn things to gold from the inside? So when we look at Midas's story, we think, oh, it would be really awful if I turned things by accident to gold and I couldn't eat or drink. And when we look at Medusa, we go, oh, how do I avoid her turning me to stone? It's like, why do we sympathize with him? Why do we see his story from the inside and hers from the outside? And that really was the issue that I wanted to explore. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natalie Haynes, and we're talking about her latest novel, Stone Blind. And Natalie, let's move on, if we must, to um, to Perseus. Then, um, <laughs> as you said, Perseus is a much later addition. Yes. To this story involves perhaps our old friend Pseudo Apollodorus as well. Which I'm pleased to see. And as you said, Perseus is more of a sort of an invention to fit into Medusa's story. Yeah, I think than so. Medusa being the bad guy in Perseus's story. Mm. But in terms of, you know, Perseus and just the, the concept of the, the Greek male hero in particular, you take rather a dim beauty. <laughs> I mean, he was a lot of fun to write this way. I don't know what you want me to say. The thing is that Perseus has, I mean, there are two ways of interpreting the process by which Perseus kills Medusa. The first is that he is the son of Zeus and he is assisted by so many gods. You know, he's wearing the shoes of Hermes, he's wearing the hat of invisibility given to him by Hades, albeit indirectly, the sword that he's carrying belongs to Zeus. All of these have been loaned to him by the Hesperides. Athene is advising him. We can see it on Vars paintings. She and Hermes are with him. Uh, Certainly she is always with him pretty well when he uh, attacks Medusa. So he's absolutely surrounded by divine assistance. Now, of course, the traditional way of reading this is, and therefore he must be a really good hero because who else would the gods all pile in to help like this? He's a son of Zeus. All these gods have come to help him out. He's got help from you know from Zeus from Hades from Hermes from Athene from the Hesperides loads of help but another way of looking at it was just how rubbish is he that he needs so many people to help him and that I'm afraid is the irresistible version that I chose for this narrative was you know he's only a teenage boy we think of these you know Greek heroes of myth being these sort of incredible sort of superheroes but he's just, he's really young when he goes on this quest. And I thought, what basically, what if he is just a whiny adolescent and he doesn't really know what, what he's doing? And the gods are going to find it really difficult to help him because they can't understand how helpless he is because they're gods. You know, what's the point in thinking about it? He'll be dead in a few years and there's no point in investing to them. The, the human lifespan is a really short time. So it's like asking you to care about an ant. And so there's this sort of, there's this joy, I hope, in the in the clash of ideas between gods who just don't care, but are sort of obliged to help him because he's the son of Zeus, and Zeus is obviously the king of the gods of Olympus. And it's like, well, what would it be like if he was just, you know, enormously normal and a bit hopeless? He's just a teenage boy. And it just it meant that you could have this incredible sense of him versus other people as being as becoming increasingly powerful. You know, he starts as a baby, but he starts even before that in the book. But he, you know, we first meet him as a as a baby and the son of an absent father of Zeus in the book. And so he's in, he's incredibly weak relative to the people around him. But during the book, he becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. You know, he goes on this hero's journey. It's like, well, what what would it be like if that was if that was set against these gods who just honestly don't care if he lives or dies, but just have a sort of vague social obligation to ensure that it's the former and not the latter. And you say he goes on a, on a hero's journey, and while technically that might be true in terms yeah. of his personal <laughs> development, he's no hero. I mean, he just He's not. murders indiscriminately, yeah. uh, cheats people, 
Yeah, that's all in Ovid, I'm afraid. So, yeah, I mean, there are moments where I've I've chosen to heighten one or another or another bit. But yeah, he's a mass murderer in Ovid. It's absolutely there in the text and we just sort of overlook it in the same way. I think that we, you know, we kind of do the same with Theseus, who we think of as being a big hero. And it's like, well, he's only a hero if you think of the Minotaur as a monster. But, you know, there's a fantastic short story by Borges called The House of Asterion, which looks at that encounter, the labyrinth encounter, from the perspective of Asterion, which is the name of the Minotaur, which people always forget if they even are are ever told it, and that he has feelings too. You know, of course he does. And so it's like, well, what what would that look like? And uh, yeah, he is a, a really murderous person. And Theseus, in turn, very murderous. Hercules, Heracles, very murderous. So it's like, okay, well, let's interrogate that a bit and stop just presenting them as heroes without any kind of criticism. Heracles actually appears in this book, although you don't name him. I don't. Yeah. Did you work out why? Well, there's a very, I mean, that whole, I was going to say that whole sequence where you, where you sort of relate the battle between the, um, the, the, the gods and the, and the titans is, is just amazing, like a really sort of bravura sequence. And yeah, I mean, I just presumed that it, this was, again, because he, he criticised this whole concept of the, uh, of the individual male hero, but maybe not. Well, that too, but actually it's a timeline issue. It's impossible to impose a timeline on gods and goddesses. Impossible. Because even within one narrative, it'll be contradicted because, you know, they're timeless. And so if you want to put them in a narrative story, it's incredibly difficult. You have to choose an order for how things happen. You can't just have everything be simultaneous. So Athena's timeline is presented as unanchored as it can be without making no sense at all. Because there's no, you know, there is no timeline for her. She doesn't, she barely remembers things. And that's highlighted a couple of times in the in the book. because. You know, to her, they're minutes away when they're actually, you know, centuries away or vice versa. But actually, it's the case that Hercules is the grandson, I think, of Perseus. Um, And so it would make absolutely no sense to a normal non-classics nerd reader if I made that clearer, I decided. So I took his name out. I'm always happy to take out the names of of men that aren't important, because obviously it's just the, the world's smallest revenge for the number of times that you get a female character who's given no name and just goes, oh, but be careful to a man as he goes off to do something. But yeah, it's the second time I've done it for a different reason um, in my novels. Uh, the first time is with the poet in A Thousand Ships where uh, my editor said, I'm not sure people will know it's Homer. And I said, it doesn't matter. He doesn't name the goddess at the beginning of the Iliad. So why would I name him You know, at the beginning of ships? It doesn't matter. And and here it was, it was something more prosaic, I'm afraid. It was... Uh, yeah, it was just that I didn't want to muddy things. If I don't think many people know that there's a sort of family connection between Perseus and Hercules, but I didn't want to confuse things by making it explicit. Well, it's also nice that we can just say nowadays that the gods live outside of space and time rather than they just had no idea how to write coherent stories. In those yeah, things. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of a it, it was it's incredibly difficult. It's the by far the hardest thing to do with the gods is to try and impose any kind of timeline on them because sometimes you'll see them in like a work of art and you'll be like wait how can you have that in this story when you don't get that until this thing that happens after that oh (laughs) my head hurts so it's like a sort of sometimes they're like an an escher painting or something you know you're you're completely baffled by how to impose any kind of order on the chaos but yeah it's a challenge 
So you mentioned, and obviously we've talked in all when we've talked about all of these previous books that you know your your project is is partly to forefront the women of Greek myths rather than the men in these stories. And this is not mm. just Medusa's story. This book, you also spend a lot of time looking at Athena, but um, also Andromeda. So tell us something about who Andromeda was and and her part in this story. So Andromeda is a princess of Ethiopia. She's the daughter of Cassiope or Cassiopeia. She's known as both and a man named Kepheus, who's the king of Ethiopia. And then things start to get a little bit vague because the Greeks' version of Ethiopia, their notion of it is enormous. It's like the whole of Africa that's not Egypt, basically, or uh, Libya. I mean, they're, they're pretty vague, I think it's fair to say. But somewhere I've got a map that somebody drew of what Hesiod thinks Africa looks like, or you know, what Herodotus thinks Africa looks like. <laughs> Just like, oh my God, that, I think that's worse than my map drawing skills and mine are pretty poor. And it's, I think it partly comes from a sense of cultural belief in their own superiority. It's like, well, we're Greek, so we don't need to know about anywhere else really. And also maps aren't a particularly big thing yet uh, at that point of, at the time of, of Herodotus. So, you know, why would he think in those kinds of terms? But we do get some incredible stories coming out of out of the Greek notion of Ethiopia. And one is this is this story of Andromeda, who is a, a princess, and she ends up being held as a sort of hostage to the rage of Poseidon. And it's interesting because again, I think people tend to think, because of the Clash of the Titans movie from the 1980s, that Perseus goes to get a Gorgon head in order to rescue Andromeda from a monster that's about to menace her. But again, not the case, I'm afraid. It's just a sort of happy coincidence that he gets to menace a monster with a Gorgon head. He's gone to get it for a completely different purpose. It's just a sort of the vagary of a rich man who says, go and get me a Gorgon head. And he goes, oh, okay. And so he's given this sort of chivalrous motive after the fact, but it is a long way after the fact, many millennia after the fact, or at least a couple of millennia after the fact. So yeah, I, I mean, Andromeda is, as young women are and were, in worlds run by by their parents. She has no power and no control, um, but she's extremely aware that that's not appropriate. And she is generally, she is capable of making slightly better decisions for herself than her parents fear. I'm not completely on side with all her decisions in, in this book. I'm not going to lie to you. And uh, I would rather she had done something different uh, with <laughs> choices. But, uh, you know, since I didn't get to choose, I did get to choose. And this is the version that I chose. It's the right one for the book. But yeah, sometimes I think uh, Andromeda should have just run away and joined the Amazons and, and lived in a nice sisterly commune. I want to come back to the to the head and mm. I guess those narrators that we talked about before. The Gorgonea, which is one of the narrators of the story in this book, and Medusa's head, which we keep we keep talking about the fact that, you know, Medusa is a person and then she's decapitated. But the, the head and Medusa are very separate entities. As we they mentioned are. at the beginning, the head existed before the body did. The head um, does exist before the body. So tell us exactly. more about this idea of the Gorgonea. Well, I guess I had always thought this book would be narrated by the decapitated head of Medusa. This was always my plan. And then it sort of it swung around a little and, uh, and changed a, a little from that point. But... Uh, they, as you say, they do still remain intact as a as a narrative force. And I guess there's two things. The first is that, you know, the Gorgon head should be different from Medusa, because as you say, in, in art terms, it precedes her. And in literature terms, it does too. We can see an example in the Iliad is that Agamemnon has a, a Gorgonian painted on his shield. There's an example in the Odyssey where 
um, having gone down to the underworld in book 11, is that right, of the Odyssey, Odysseus has been incredibly brave and he's sort of spoken to all these ghosts of his uh, former loved ones and he's seen lots of other people around. And then he suddenly gets the fear that Persephone will send the head of a gorgon after him and he runs away. That's that's all it takes for him to... And it's like, well, you've sailed to the edges of the earth and then gone down to the underworld. So you're you're no coward, but obviously that's a frightening prospect. So I felt like the Gorgonian had to be scary in a way that Medusa isn't. And I also felt like she's really earned it by this point. You know, she's been horrifically treated and her beginning of existence, um, you know, birth is really the wrong word because, of course, she's kind of created by death. It's so violent and so vicious um, but I thought, well, yeah, why should she still be nice? You know, what happens if she's not? And yeah, there's still elements of humanity and gorgonity in her, I think. But yeah, her patience is pretty well, is pretty well out. And you obviously thought that the head giving birth to Pegasus is pushing it a bit far. I felt like it was taking it too far away from the story that I wanted to tell. Because obviously, in the moments when Medusa is decapitated, her severed neck gives birth to Pegasus and to Criseor, the golden giant, who no one ever remembers. I always feel bad for him because Pegasus obviously gets all the headlines because yay, flying horse. But yeah, poor Criseor. But I felt like, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's, there was, there's a lot about motherhood in this novel. So I felt I had to weigh up the kind of costs and the gains from missing it out. But it felt like I was asking you're asking a lot of a kind of non-nerd audience to be like, oh, yeah, and by the way, she gives birth through her neck and one of them's a horse. It just felt like it was taking it too far. And just to finish off, you've been writing these novels for, you know, a number of years now. And and obviously, along with people, great people like Madeline Miller and, and Pat Barker, one walks into a Waterstones now and there is a lot of books that are retellings of greek myths and so what's next are there any left uh there are some left not least because i've got a contract to write another um so yeah there are some left i'm gonna i'm writing the sequel to pandora's jar next which doesn't currently have a title because i haven't thought of one not because i'm hiding it from you apparently i can't call it pandora's jar strikes back which was my original plan and then i tried pandora's jar and the temple of doom nothing so I'm going to keep working on that. But yeah, so that's up for me next. More more women in Greek myth, but this time goddesses. I do see that some of the people in the first book are goddesses, but details, details. We didn't know it would sell so well. <laughs> so here we are. And then, yes, I do write another another novel and that one will be Medea. So that'll be another fun packed romp from me. Yeah. So yeah, rape survivor to child murderer. There's no there's just no update in my flat, I'm afraid. It's all murder, murder, murder. Anyway. Well, I cannot wait for that. Can I get you to read us a bit then? Yeah, of course. So this is the very, very, very beginning. Gorgonaeon. I see you. I see all those whom men call monsters. And I see the men who call them that. Call themselves heroes, of course. I only see them for an instant. And then they're gone. But it's enough, enough to know that the hero isn't the one who's kind or brave or loyal. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes he is monstrous. And the monster, who is she? She is what happens when someone cannot be saved. This particular monster is assaulted, abused and vilified. And yet, as the story is always told, 
She is the one you should fear. She is the monster. We'll see about that. So I've been talking to Natalie Haynes. We've been talking about her new novel, Stone Blind, which is out in the UK from Mantle. Natalie, thank you so much for telling me about it. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.